Have you ever wondered what it takes to build a successful business in the Australian property industry? Well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Business and Property Development, a monthly podcast in which industry leaders share their insights and experience with host Harry Karadimus. Hello and welcome to Business and Property Development. In this month's episode, I had the opportunity to collaborate on an episode with Jock Gammon, co-founder of JungleFi. JungleFi is a pioneering company that develops, builds and maintains nature-based solutions. If you live in Sydney, you'll no doubt recognise the iconic One Central Park on Broadway, a residential tower that's draped in vertical gardens. That's just one of the many possibilities and opportunities when it comes to nature-based solutions. Unfortunately, as of late last month, JungleFi has chosen to wind down its operations. At a time when we desperately need to reconnect with nature, bring nature into our cities in a significant way and make bolder moves with landscape integration into property developments of all typologies, this is very sad to see. Despite the news, we're still sharing this conversation because of the relevance and significant value in what Jock has to say. Within this episode, you'll get a glimpse of the knowledge and passion that Jock has for nature and nature-based solutions within our cities. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Jock Gammon. Jock, welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you with me today. Thanks very much for having me, Harry. I'm excited to be here as well. Likewise. I've been very much looking forward to this conversation today for a couple of reasons. Firstly, to find out more about yours and Hannah's entrepreneurial journey in starting JungleFi, essentially pioneering the field of living infrastructure. The second is to shine a light on the discipline of, of living infrastructure and to highlight why it is so important that we are integrating nature into our development projects for the benefit of the wider community, but also right down to the individual and their you know mental and physical well-being when they have have a connection with nature. There's some pretty key topics to run through today, which I'm really excited to be unpacking. Yeah, and I think now more than ever with climate change, these are really important topics that we need to be having proper and frank discussions about in our cities. There's been a lot of talk for many years, but now's the time to stop the talk and, and put things into action. There's certainly a lot of exciting initiatives and policies and leadership from organisations, which I'm excited to talk about today. So it's going to be a good conversation. And uh, yeah, thanks for bringing this to the forefront for, for your listeners to really understand what impacts plants can have in our cities. Let's make a start. I'd like to ask you a couple of brief questions to paint a picture of you for our audience. So if we can start from, I guess, the beginning, where were you born and where did you grow up? I grew up in Adelaide. I followed my father's footsteps through through school and through university. He worked in finance. I went to university and studied commerce. Realised after I moved to London, got my first job over there, that accounting and office work wasn't for me. Stuck in that in that industry for about five or six years uh, during my time in London. Then when I moved back to Sydney, but I knew it really wasn't for me, and I was desperate to find something new. I went back to university and studied environmental science and that still wasn't for me. And it wasn't until we moved to an apartment in Sydney that had a garden out the front and I found myself just gravitating to this small garden and spending a lot of time in there. And then one day the the light bulb went off and I realised that that's what I wanted to do to pursue an interest in gardening. And my mum had a landscaping business, a landscape design business, and I had worked with the, her landscapers when I was young, but it never really clicked to sort of following my mum's footsteps. So I think those days of her having us out in the garden, cleaning out her, her waste and uh, keeping the place clean was certainly the catalyst for 
for my interest in, and love of gardening. And I actually got fired from my accounting job at a hotel chain. I wasn't, I was rocking up at nine and leaving at five and that wasn't what was expected. So they fired me. I'd already started looking for work. And the next day I started working with a, a guy doing landscaping. And that was where the evolution of my career took off. So touched briefly on your early career path. Was there study involved in the introduction of your landscaping career? Yeah, so I went to the Ride TAFE in New South Wales and I studied horticulture specialising in commercial landscaping. Uh, so I was working a, a landscaping job during the day and studying at night. And then two years into that three-year course, I, I set up a business called Green Rooms. I wasn't yet qualified to do that and I started off on some small projects and I still remember my first job very clearly as a, as a landscaping job. I wanted it was about $7,500. It probably should have been a $30,000 job. But, uh, yeah, I was cobbling together all sorts of bits and pieces to make a water feature and thankfully the, the client was very uh, understanding and I think she knew it was my first job. But, uh, yeah, looking back, it was sort of, one of certainly one of those memorable projects that you think, how did I, how did I get away with that? Uh, yeah, that was my foray into residential landscape. So let's talk about Green Rooms, that being a landscaping business, where did you take it and how did that transform into Junglefy? Uh, so we started that business, I think, in 2003 and had it until 2013. I think in its heyday, we employed about 25 people. We designed the gardens and then we built them and then we maintained them. And it was certainly yeah, a great great industry to be in, but at the same time, it was dealing with mums and dads and, and emotions. So when you had to do a variation for a, a new tap or something like that, a $500 variation was a, a big deal. And it, it was a, a lot, of, lot more emotion involved in the projects. Another guy that used to work within Jungle Fire, he heard about these green walls and this conference coming up, green walls and green roofs. And so we had a look at that and straight away knew that this is the direction that we wanted to head. We had green rooms operating as a as part of that business to begin with. Uh, Jungle Fire hadn't been thought of then when we realised that we needed to switch from the, the residential space to the commercial space and that's where Jungle Fire was born. What did you want to start doing with Jungle Fire? Was it always getting into the larger and more high density projects? Did you see a, like a gap in the market? I think it's certainly seeing a gap in the market, but also having had our first child and where the world was heading, climate change was a discussion topic back then. It was becoming more of a discussion topic. I've always growing our own food and, and being connected to nature. And I think to realise that people in the city, living in the city of Sydney, yes, we've got lots of greenery around it, but our urban cities uh, lack that greenery. So we saw firstly partly the opportunity, but also the, the need to be changing the way our cities are, are built. And that's where Jungle Fire really one of the main drivers for why we set up Jungle Fire Way came about. I mean, given landscaping and living infrastructure is quite hard to get into, it's like it doesn't appear all that often. You've got to work quite hard to get them even in the, the more affluent areas. So what I would like to understand was, was this a point in time where living infrastructure wasn't really a thing that was being done? Definitely. Uh, when we started, there was a handful of projects. It was a nascent in industry with uh, one other, I guess, main competitor who's still around today and a handful of smaller players as well. We were definitely small when we entered the market, but it's only in the last few years that we've really seen this industry. Um, you're using the word living infrastructure, and we've, there's words like green infrastructure, living architecture, the new one that we're using, and uh, sorry to flip the vernacular, but is nature-based solutions. So looking at how we can use nature as a solution to the challenges that we're having at climate change. So um, I'll be using the word nature-based solutions. We're at the, the forefront of the industry, and with any 
new industry, it takes time for there to be confidence in what's being done. It takes time for people to understand what the challenges are. Um, when we're innovating, creating new things, it cre- requires an open-minded client to to take the leap of faith to go with you on, on testing a new technology. And we've certainly had some great customers in that space. Now it's not such a, do we want to do it? It's we need to start doing it and we have to start doing it. And I think when we talk about policies later on, some of the drivers from the likes of City of Melbourne and City of Sydney, they also are sharing the same view. So it certainly has been a challenge building up the industry, but we've got a number of successful projects. And again, we've learned lots along the way. We've had to pull up green roofs because of dodgy waterproofing. We've had to rethink how we do things, what type of plants we use some late and, and stressful nights and uh, with any new industry pioneering industry you're going to have these things i think that's part of the reason why i was actually so keen to talk with you because you know you recognize that it's not an overnight thing it actually takes a really long time to pioneer an industry and to get traction to innovate but also to balance sort of the business realities of of these kinds of businesses to make a success of it and then finally it starts to get traction before we get into the stage in jungle fire where you started to get that kind of traction. I'd like to pause for a minute on the value proposition with nature-based solutions so that we can understand why it's so important to have them integrated into projects. If we can just start by understanding, so for property developments in the wider community, why is it so important to have them in projects? If we look at the fundamentals of our cities and what the challenges are that we have in our cities, urban heat's a main one. Uh, We have problems with quality of stormwater runoff off the roof. We know that as we've built our cities and especially expanded into the peri-urban fringes, we've been destroying biodiversity and really limiting the opportunity for biodiversity to come back into our cities. We know that with vehicles and industry, pollution is a big problem in our cities. And the concept of biophilia, which is a human's innate connection to nature. If you look at where we've evolved as as humans, we've evolved in nature. The fact that we have evolved in nature makes a lot of sense that we need to be connected with nature. And I think that's what we've lost in the way that our cities are built. Um, when we look at what we're doing for for zoos and, and creating green areas for zoos, we spend a lot of time doing that. But when we look at what we do for a city in a large scale, yes, we have little parks and things, but we are creating these big concrete jungles. And I think it's the realisation that plants are able to address all of those challenges, that plants are able to absorb heat, they're able to attract biodiversity, they're able to manage and clean stormwater runoff, they're able to remove pollutants and they're able to connect us with biodiversity and bring connect us with nature. It's becoming quite clear and evident and research that we've got supports this. Research from all around the world also supports this, that we need more nature in our cities. Last week, or a few weeks ago, the City for Greater Sydney uh, released a report called Nature Positive Sydney, and in there they identified that they need to start treating plants in the city as important as roads and electricity and water. It's a fundamental part of what we need in our cities, and we obviously totally agree with that, but I think it's the fact that everyone's also seeing this, that nature needs to be an integral part of our city is a fundamental change for how we create our cities of the future. Basically, with that study, did it focus on how private land begins to really integrate nature and it not just being something that you see on sidewalks or land that gets dedicated by council, it's something that we're asking private development actually to bring into? 
It is. It's interesting way they put that in context because, yes, traditionally it's been the private people that need to come in and put the plants on their building for the benefits of the city. But we've had projects where the clients say, well, I'm putting all these plants on the side of my buildings. I get to see a small part of them when I look out the window. But the people that are actually getting the main benefit are the people within the city. Why should I be paying for the maintenance? And I think it's a really valid point. So what this discussion paper has looked at is to say, well, can we have a levy that is put on people within the cities or within councils that actually supports the installation and the ongoing maintenance of nature-based solutions in our cities because it's such a critical part. So then the onus doesn't come back onto the building owner to actually have to pay for the upkeep of the maintenance. And that has been one of the biggest barriers to uptake for nature-based solutions is who's paying for the installation costs and who's paying for the maintenance. So this is really pivotal. Similarly, in the city of Melbourne, they're looking at other policies to say, well, if you're going to build a new building, you have to have 40% of the building's footprint has to be represented as greenery on the building, whether that's on a roof or on a facade. So more of a mandation approach down there, whereas it's uh, more of an incentive approach up in the city of Sydney. But they're both policies are talking to each other to really support the how we get more plants in our cities. Do you have some key metrics about why it's so critical to have nature-based solutions in cities and in property development projects? Are there some overwhelming numbers where you just go, well, this is a no-brainer, like why aren't we doing this? So for us at Jungle Fire, it's always been important and a big part of um, running a business has been about authenticity. We've been undertaking research with UTS as one organisation since 2014 and through them we now have 20 peer-reviewed scientific papers and we've done other work with universities in Melbourne and Adelaide and other research organisations. So to actually have that data behind us has been a really critical part. So some of the really sort of standout metrics that we did a project with uh, Len Lease and City of Sydney and UTS at Barangaroo called Daramu House. On there we found when you integrate solar panels in amongst the green roof, there's a 3.6% improvement in solar panel efficiency or the the output, uh, which is a significant number uh, when they make a 1% to 2% performance increase. It it makes uh, a lot of news. To get 3.6% was a big deal. We also know from that project there was a nine-fold increase in insect life, a four-fold increase in avian or or bird life compared to a control roof next door to it. And then a significant 100 times less water runs off a a green roof during a peak rainfall event than it does off a hard stand, normal hard stand roof. So that has significant impacts for urban infrastructure, for developers having to put in stormwater detention tanks, which serve a similar purpose. So those sorts of metrics are big. The other one we've had is looking at air quality. So we know that our breathing wall in outdoor applications can remove significant amounts of particulate matter, nitrogen dioxide, ozone, indoors it can remove volatile organic compounds and carbon dioxide. So we have all the research and the the data behind this. And then what we actually did is gave that research um, independently to an independent research economics organisation, and they actually crunched the numbers into some real-world discussions. So we know that one square metre of our breathing wall has the same pollution removal capacity as 28 square metres of tree canopy cover. So when you start to look at city applications, City of Sydney traditionally used to measure air quality in Roselle 26 metres in the air, but it's not very representative of that little corner somewhere in the City of Sydney, which is high traffic and high pollution. So now with the advent of low quality sensors, we can say, well, let's target putting breathing walls on these locations because we know that we can remove those pollutants, focus on air quality rather than having to sort of just 
put the thumb up in the air and try and work out where the best location is. Just out of curiosity, for people that might not be aware, nature positive, can you explain that further? Like, What does that actually mean? Yeah, so nature positive means most organisations have some impact on nature, whether it's a paper-making company is an obvious one, they, they have to chop down forests, but a construction company or a developer, they've got concrete that goes into it, they've got wood materials, they are having a negative impact on nature because they're having to source their materials from nature. Most all of our materials come from nature. So it's what impact, how do we lessen the impact that we're having through our day-to-day activities? How do we lessen the impact on nature and how do we lessen the impact on biodiversity? So if we can start to look at one of the bigger ones that is called the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures. So companies having to disclose what impact they're having on nature and in some ways of offsetting is, is one of the easier ways, but there's also questions now about the impact of offsets and is it really having a measurable impact? But you can buy old growth forests and protect those. So that's a way of protecting nature that you may be impacting. It's hard in some city situations to have a major effect on biodiversity or nature. Um, So if you can look to offset it somewhere outside of the city, but the opportunity to bring nature back into our city with all the benefits that we've spoken about, it is that nature positive face that these companies can show to their client, to the city, to the world that they're leading and having a positive impact on biodiversity and nature. So at the moment, it's not a metric within their reporting, but it is going to become a metric and they just don't have the information or data to show how they're going to do it. And that's where Jungle Fire, with our data and information, we can actually show what the measurable impact will be on their investment with nature. Would you be able to capitalize on this if you chose to explore retrofitting your buildings with nature-based solutions? Or I guess a lot of existing developments wouldn't have had this opportunity or passed the opportunity up when they were putting the building together to bring it up to current standards and to bring it more in line with where cities need to be. Will they need to have that data to understand how to Definitely. To, to bring nature into it? Yeah, and I think it's the important thing is not just putting plants on the sake of the side on the side of the building for the sake of putting plants on the side of the building. Because at the end of the day, if there is the operational cost and it's not performing a function or a benefit, then in a few years' time, five, ten years' time, it's probably going to be pulled down. But if you can actually show that through putting this here, I've reduced pollution, I've improved people's health, brought wildlife and biodiversity back into this space that wasn't here. The retrofit market is a one that really needs to be focused on. It is more challenging because of whether it's structural limitations or access methodologies, but 80% of a, a city's buildings are, are going to be existing into the future and we don't want to be knocking them down to put new ones up because that's heavily carbon intensive. So how do we retrofit how do we work with existing facades we can take facades off and put new ones on there are some concepts how do we strengthen up a roof to be able to support 160 kilos we can create very lightweight green roofs so i think it's it's about thinking differently about how we've built and how we're going to build into the future and looking for those retrofit opportunities because yeah we can't just leave the the legacy buildings because it's going to require all buildings and everyone to sort of come on board to really maximize the impact Yeah, what I thought was incredible was the ratio of living infrastructure versus canopy space, the one in 28 ratio. That's incredible. It's such an enormous number. And you think, you know, as cities get more dense, doesn't it make sense for nature-based solutions to be basically a mandatory requirement, I would have thought. Yeah, and I think we know that cities are limited. We can't go start putting in new parks in cities because it's difficult to do. And putting a park on top of a private residence doesn't have the same impact that it will for the rest of the city. Yes, it will for those those building occupants, but vertical gardens, green walls, breathing walls are certainly a big opportunity. Green roofs, again, it's not for the amenity of the building occupants, but it's about for the benefit of the city. And I think this is also where we need to really be focusing on. It's not just about 
providing greenery for the benefits of the people, but all the other benefits that it can provide. And I think that's there's a big paradigm shift in that thinking as well. Uh, people investing the money for someone may not even see the roof, but they know that it's going to improve the quality of stormwater runoff, which is going to improve the waterways, which is then going to benefit everyone. So it's a, a collective shift rather than the individual approach that we're, we're seeing across the cities. But let's jump back into Jungle Fire and, and just understand your progression into some of the landmark projects that you guys have put together. Our first major project was One Central Park in Sydney. It's a very world famous project, finished back in 2013. And I think before then, our biggest project was probably about twenty or thirty thousand dollars. And next thing, we were doing a one point six million dollar project with materials coming out of France. And we had these contracts, two hundred and sixty pages long, with clauses and words we'd never heard of before. But the three of us, my wife, our previous business partner, and uh, myself, we looked at it and said, "Well, we've, we've got to go for this." We went for it, signed the contract, and, and off we went. So it was certainly a, a massive learning curve, but certainly a monument project, as they call it, one that sort of put us on the map in terms of our ability to install these projects. We did the green walls, and then we went on to maintain the whole project for, for seven years. We finished that up in 2020, um, but what we learned on that project certainly influenced a lot of how we designed and built projects and our products going forward. And a lot of the consultancy work that I do has been influenced by work on that project. Do you mind if we touch on some of the challenges and some of the learnings that you've developed, you know, doing this project? The step up is enormous, isn't it? It was. And the hindsight, we, we were probably idiots for taking it on, but yeah, you have to take risks in business. We did. And it was lucky that we were able to to deliver that project as we did. Certainly a lot of hard work and I think the key thing and certainly know this more and more, it's about the people behind us and within the business that actually deliver these projects and the learnings that they provide that allow the businesses such as ours to grow. Did you have to develop the product further to, to be a fit for One Central Park and with some of the leaps that you had to take to develop these kinds of items? Uh, Patrick Blanc was the green, he's the sort of pioneer of green walls. He's a, an expert in putting plants on buildings. He had one of the first green wall systems and it was his green wall system that we needed to put on this project. He's an artist uh, first and foremost and uh, we then had to put his four A4 pages of how he builds a, a green wall into a, a major commercial project with 180 different components of all different shapes and sizes and wind loads and all of that. So we had to recreate a whole new system and had to run everything by him before we could get it approved. So dealing with France and different time zones and new technologies, that certainly presented some challenges. But I think mainly the, the biggest learnings that we have came from an operational point of view where we actually had to start maintaining it. So the idea that we had five full-time people on that site maintaining it. So that the amount of people that were required and the, the fact that the BMU, the building maintenance unit, it takes to get from the tallest building at the top down to the bottom without touching any plants along the way takes 45 minutes. And then it takes half an hour to get back up. So it's an hour and a quarter. People typically can work three hours before they need to go to the toilet and have a break. So you've done an hour and a quarter of traversing, and then you actually get an hour and a quarter of maintenance to do the work. So a very slow process to get the work done. So our biggest learning from that is a much more bigger focus on using ropes access to people, abseilers doing the work. Um, with that comes, how do I manage green waste? How do I manage the prunings that come off that project? So looking at strategies to manage green waste, not taking it up to the top, having to lift... I think it was 2,000 Sulo bins full of green waste. We had to lift over a safety barrier because you couldn't have a safety barrier with a gate in it because it negated that. So loaded barriers down two flights of stairs because the lift didn't go to the roof. It, the goods lift stopped two floors below because they couldn't 
overrun it because of height restrictions. So all of these things that we started to learn and it was very painful to begin with and even things down to the cladding on planter boxes, some water would pool in there and then suddenly mosquitoes were then breeding inside that pooling water. So we had to drill all those out to allow waters to drain away. So things that you, yes, we had design sessions and we tried to work out as many of these things as we could, but until you actually get on the project and, and go through these motions, you just, it's impossible to predict. At the same time, we're now progressing with better ways of maintaining, better ways of installing plants. We know it's very hard to get a plant to establish it 100 metres in the air compared to what it is on the ground with wind and the ability to get round regularly to check on it. Um, so modular format and design is a key part of that from an installation point of view, but also from a sustainability point of view is that we're not creating legacy assets or legacy products that then have to go to rubbish or waste. How can we compost them? How can we reuse them and put them back into service? And that's a key part of our design and our, our learnings that we've had from such projects. You know, you mentioned the emphasis on research and development, and what I would love to understand is how the business has managed to strike a balance between taking on projects and delivering projects to keep the business running, but also then to keep innovating and to keep bringing new ideas to the table, testing new ideas. I mean, all that costs money and you have to be able to sort of balance bringing new ideas to the table and also bringing them to market while also feeding the company as, you know, so to speak. It's a, a really good question and it's certainly has put pressures on the business at time, but it was something that we set out at the beginning, knowing that um, wanting to have research at our core. So we set aside investment for money. We any profits we've usually put back into research. So it's been a concerted focus. And yes, it has provided cash flow challenges and, and ways to support that. We've had some good support of the New South Wales government, but also the federal government in terms of matching dollar for dollar grant applications. But certainly one of the biggest ways that we've been able to do research is our partnership with the universities and particularly UTS, Dr. Fraser Torpy, Dr. Peter Erger, uh, researchers that we've been working with from the beginning, a lot of PhD students with an interest in changing the way our cities want to work on our projects as well. So over time, it's, it's made the cost of research more manageable from our side, but having that relationship with those two individuals in particular, plus the host of others that we've worked with along the way has been such an important part and an, an excitement because we feed stuff to them, they feed back to us, and it just really drives that excitement and culture to innovate. We've got a, a solid pipeline of research. Our new one that we're embarking on is uh, ARC Linkage, which is with the federal government, but it's looking at how we can use our breathing wall to offset energy use within our cities. So how can we air conditioning systems turn on to remove carbon dioxide and remove bodily odours? That's why we flush our buildings out. And there's regulations that say how often you need to do that. But we know the breathing wall can remove carbon dioxide and it can remove bodily odours. Plus it does all the other benefits. Plus it removes gaseous pollutants as well, something that air conditioning filters can't do. So having these next stages of research and then finding organizations like the, the Len Leases and the Frasers and these other bigger organizations are also interested in working out how we can provide impact on our cities. Those organizations now contributing, assisting with the contribution to research is a really um, fundamental change for how we're going to continue to do research going forward. The products and technologies we create are, are tapping into what Mother Nature has been doing for billions of years, but how do we bring that into a context that can be installed on the inside or the outside of the building. So nature certainly um, directs us in terms of where, how we design our products. We've got now a circular breathing wall system for internal applications and we struggled to get a, a curve within the, with using our regular square module. So our industrial designer, a guy by the name of 
Adam Cornish looked at the piece of corn and how a corn is designed in the shape of a corn kernel. And we've designed our next module off that so we can now create tight curves and do all different types of arrangements. So certainly referring to nature, but a lot of it's also about accessibility for maintenance, how we're going to design products. So a big one we're, project we're consulting on down in Melbourne, it's going to be the tallest building in the, the Southern Hemisphere, it's called South Bank by Beulah. How do we enable plants to be grown off-site uh, where they can establish and how do we bring them on-site without having large CO2 emissions? How do we make sure the plants can establish? How do we make sure that it can be done safely. So looking at all of the day-to-day operational challenges, how do we make sure that we can bring the cost of installation down, but how do we also bring the operational cost down because we don't want to create these legacy projects as we spoke about earlier that are costing the building owners millions. So the early stage consultancy, a lot of our concepts are, are developed from that. A client has a problem. We've probably already discussed it or thought about it through our annual or biannual ideation sessions where we get the team together and we thrive everything and all the possible combinations so again it's that bringing the team along to work through challenges and i think that's really where a lot of our products and ideas come from is the collective thought and, and meeting our clients challenges um, but also the the wandering mind at 4 30 in the morning when an idea pops in and it's amazing how much um, some of these challenges that have bugged you for a long time suddenly suddenly makes sense and then it's jumping down the rabbit hole and, uh, and seeing where it spits out at the other end I'm curious to know what the process of innovation looks like for JungleFi. How do you bring all the minds together to to come up with the ideas to answer your clients' problems? We've, um, over time, as, as we've developed as a business and implemented processes to make things better, uh, we've got a fantastic culture of the team working together, but we've also got a product development process. So we, we go through the put the idea up, we then get the team together. Is this actually a viable idea? What's the market need for it? So really looking to do the market analysis. Is there, what's the price point going to come in? Is it a fantastic idea, but no one's going to be able to afford to do it. So really putting it through the simple process, does it actually get through this first hurdle or through these first series of gates? If yes, then we move on to the next thing where we might start trying some sketches and designs and then speaking with our industrial designers and our science research partners and even our clients, what applications they see, what challenges they see. And then it's through to the prototyping stage. And we're fortunate that a lot of our clients are our actual prototype partners. So we're quite agile in terms of we come up with a concept and a partner says, well, yeah, we're happy to be your your test project. Uh, Our breathing stands we did with a builder called Built, we put five of them into their office. And yes, they were expecting some learnings and we had learnings along the way. But as long as everyone in their organization and our organization is in that same mindset, then the on-site prototyping is definitely the best way to do it. We then make changes and we're now through the breathing stands, we're going through our second generation where we're updating them based on those learnings and we're already working on our third generation so it's a it's a multi-year process to get from even i mean many multi-years to get from an original idea then through to installation and then i mean you never should reach a final product because there's always improvements to make but it's just having clients along for that journey and, and making sure up front with them i used to be a bit shy to tell a client that it's a prototype but a lot of them actually want to be involved in leading research and be the first to do something because they can talk about it it's good for their company culture as well so we certainly see the big big shift and a shift in my perspective as well and how we look at it. 
they want to come on the journey too. Yeah, and they can't do it themselves in-house, but they want to, they know the direction and we're there to support them. And that's what we provide to a lot of the clients. They have ideas and they have aspirations and we're the agile company that employs 34 people that can come in. We have our own nurseries and we can do those sorts of things. So we're a good partnership for a lot of um, bigger organizations and smaller ones as well. Uh, let's talk about some of the landmark projects that you guys have been involved in. You mentioned one central park. In particular, what I wanted to understand was what it was about these developments and these projects that facilitated the ability to bring nature into them. I guess I say that from the context of a lot of projects don't integrate nature very well, or they do it in a quite a rudimentary way, as in, you know, we're still talking about planters and whatnot, which is kind of basic. I just want to understand what it is about these particular projects, these particular clients that enabled nature to be brought into them. Was it size? Was it budget? Was it appetite for risk? One Central Park was definitely our first and one of the biggest impact ones. The other one, which is one of my favourite, is the Manly Vale Car Park. So it's a car park we did for transport for New South Wales. It's a park and ride, so you drive your car there, park, and then catch the bus into the city. But it was residential area. People weren't happy with it. It was going to be a normal car park clad in aluminium cladding and pretty colours and things like that. But everyone was up in arms. And through our connections at, at UTS, um, one of the researchers there worked for the same organisation, Transport for New South Wales, came to us and said, look, is there anything you guys can think about for this car park? So we created a car park that's covered in our breathing walls. So we're actually using fans to clean the air of the car park we've actually also designed it so those green walls can rotate 180 degrees inwards so we can do maintenance from inside the car park but and the client really wanted to have something that would appease the community and by showing that we can add biodiversity we can bring nature in there the local mp um, said it was one of the first projects he's ever taken to a constituent council constituent meeting where they said yes this is actually what we want he said it was a revolutionary moment having seen this turnaround from community we know that Again, one central park when I did some days of maintenance or whenever you're around there, there's still people 10, 15 years later taking photos of that project just because of how unique it is. So nature does resonate hugely with people and they want to see more of these types of projects. So to build an infrastructure project that had the greenery on there that was serving a measurable benefit was certainly a big key project of ours. Another one that we recently finished or in the process of completing is on the West Connects now with their ventilation facilities. They're part of the exhaust system for the city. They are required and as we move into electric vehicles, they're going to be less about pumping out pollution, but they're a necessary part of ventilation at the moment. But looking, the engineers have looked future foresight uh, and we've added greenery to these and they've been called the salad stacks and people question well what benefit is there putting greenery on there there's a big art installation as well but these are necessary parts of infrastructure and if we can add plants and biodiversity on there with flowering varieties that provide food at different times of the year for insect then we've got to look at these infrastructure opportunities as opportunities to bring nature to our cities not just adding greenery on there for the sake of greenery um, so that's certainly a challenge in terms of public perception but again the public is now much more educated they know about the benefits and we've got the research to support it some of our other i guess big projects are the first len lisa's global head office they were the first partner to install one of our breathing technologies in their head office they came to the lab tours that we run at uts so they got to see the science in action so it's bringing the client along for the whole journey and then for them to be the first to to adopt our technology was certainly a, a monumental moment for us. Daramu House, another project at Barangaroo where we did this green roof research that's just been off the charts in terms of its interest. It was recently on Gardening Australia. It's had lots of worldwide publicity about it. And so it's not just about the, the publicity, but it's the ability to show 
to a wider audience what impacts these types of projects can have. It's not just another garden on a roof. So it's how do we creating clarity from complexity with the research, but actually putting in a meaningful and a measurable way that people can understand. So that for me, personally, those are the types of projects that have the biggest impact. And then internal to provide people with employment opportunities and see their stars face when they come in and they've got greenery and they can connect with nature. That's a really powerful thing for me and certainly why we set up Jungle Fire to really have that impact. Well, let's talk about junglifying our cities. In Sydney in particular, what do you think needs to change to ensure plants become a critical piece of infrastructure in not only our cities, but, but also in our developments as a whole? I think it's, uh, I mean, we're seeing clear evidence of paradigm shifts happening in this space, whether it's through the engineers, whether it's through the architects, but really the councils are, are driving and they have the overarching opportunity to influence policy decisions. So Randwick City Council, um, they have a one-for-one one replacement. So if you've got a thousand square metre footprint, you need to find a thousand square metres of greenery on your building. That could be a roof, it can include amenity area, so even the greenery with paving area, just spaces that people can use, so they're included. But those sorts of strategies, the Department of Planning on a larger scale has their LUSH strategy, which is, again, a, a one-for-one replacement strategy. We're working with a group, um, Bill Bergia um, in Rhodes, who are, who are the first project to go through this one-for-one. They've got 6,000 square metre footprint, and they've managed to find 6,000 square metres of greenery on the project. So really thought leadership and industry leading types of projects that are that we're seeing come through this and uh, nature positive sydney paper that was released a few weeks ago with the concept of really supporting this through levies it's going to see a big drive and uptake in that the green our city action plan which we help develop with the, the city of melbourne which is the the mandation of, of greenery or mandation is probably the incentivization of projects to incorporate greenery to assist in their planning approval and we just finished a project down in Melbourne last week that was the first project to go through this green factor tool or assessment process and they got some extra floors on their buildings the floors were set back but because they added the biodiversity roof because they added plants to the facade of their building for the benefit of the public then the council would say well you're doing the right thing we're going to support this and they got those extra two floors so from a developer's point of view that's a, a fantastic addition and also from their financial point of view but also from their brand and, and their profile point of view as the type of developer that they are and it's it's certainly again we're seeing a lot of movement down in the melbourne market with this green factor tool and we're going to see similar up in sydney brisbane has the breathable buildings which is again incorporating nature into their project so it's going to be industry-led and then you've got the leading developers who are pushing the boundaries and supporting these initiatives and then then the councils will step in and then the rest of the others will need to, to follow to meet these high stringent requirements we need in our cities. Chuck, thank you so much for this. It's been an incredible conversation and just from the point of view of learning things that, you know, unless you're in that space constantly, you, you might not be aware that things like these policies get released or this kind of information is available and be able to share that. So I can't thank you enough for sharing your insights and experiences. No, I very much appreciate the time, Harry. I'll say it again, but um, unless we start acting now and acting quickly, the time is over for doing little research projects and little trials because we know the technology works and we know that plants have a massive impact on our cities. Now we now need to start rolling it out. I thank you for inviting us on. It's been a great chat and uh, yeah, appreciate your time as well. Likewise, Jacques. Thanks so much. This is the end of the episode. 
I hope you've enjoyed listening to Jock and his insights into the benefits of integrating nature-based solutions. In putting this episode together, my sincerest hope is that the research, knowledge and entrepreneurial spirit that Jock had in building JungleFi gets channeled into another opportunity. What a shame it would be to lose that accumulated research and knowledge about how nature can be integrated into our buildings so that we in turn can live, work and play in happier, healthier and more resilient urban environments. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please take the time to rate this podcast on your favourite listening platform. Your support, as always, is greatly appreciated. Well, that's it from me for this month. I'd like to thank you again for listening in, and I look forward to sharing the next month's episode with you in the coming weeks. Take care, and bye for now. Thanks for listening to Business and Property Development. Join us next month for more insights from people whose business is property. To subscribe and listen to other episodes, head over to businessandpropertydevelopment.com.au.